We're going to be in 1 Samuel 14. Feels like maybe we're moving backwards. We're not, I don't know, we're not really moving backwards. We will start trudging forward into chapter 16 next week. We'll get to David, who's a little bit uh, more cheery than the focus of the book has been with, with Saul lately. Before we get going with that, um, I just feel really compelled to address some of the things that have been going on in our country. Um, I am not, I try as hard as I can be to be basically apolitical in the pulpit because I don't want Will's opinions to be the focus of any of what we're talking about here, the Word of God is our focus. Um, I was just really distressed as I've seen more and more pictures from the last week and a half of of people attacking our Capitol building, waving American flags, like that kind of offends me as an American, but set that off to the side entirely. That, that, that mob violence was associated with people holding Jesus is Lord signs and Jesus saves signs and crosses. This, part of me gets really angry and part of me wants to weep. That, that that is how so many people look out and that's the representation of Christianity that they see. And and he encapsulated it kind of nicely this week. She said, you know, the Israelites built a calf, a golden calf in the wilderness. And, and as Americans, we, we can either worship a, a golden donkey or a golden elephant. And that's wicked. God hates it. We're going to talk about what biblical courage is here this morning. And biblical courage is going to call us in a very different direction than resorting to violence to stand up for what we believe. It's going to call us in the opposite direction of that, actually. Um, it's going to be an interesting place to get from 1 Samuel 14, where uh, there's some violence here. Uh, but I, I just, as, as we move into, I, I don't know what the future holds. I'm not the prophet or the son of a prophet. Um, It won't shock me if in my lifetime or my children's lifetime we are at the place where Canada is right now, where just saying what the Bible says is considered hate speech. And, and if we're going to represent Christ well in the midst of that, we have to have a mindset that, that sees our true home as a heavenly place, the new Jerusalem not, not this earth. We're strangers and exiles in this world, First Peter 2, 11 tells us. We're a holy nation, a, a called out nation. The church is in the midst of all the different nations of this world. And so we want to be the best citizens we can. We should vote our consciences. We should seek to use the influence that God has given us to work for good things in this world. Good things, not just for us, but for our neighbors, 
We should speak up for the unborn. There's all kinds of ways we can and should be involved in, in trying to make this world and this country a better place. But that is the polar opposite of resorting to violent means to accomplish that. So that's about as political as you're ever going to hear me be. Um, I don't think it is political. I think it's just saying what God's word is going to point us to. Uh, I, I need to say that as preface before we get going. I need to pray again because i got to get my mind uh, back fit for preaching. Uh, Father God, speak to us through your word. Um, Lord, we want to have hearts and minds that are not just shaped by... I, I heard somebody use this phrase the other day, and I thought it was really helpful. It, it can be easy for us to be Bible quoters, but, but are we Bible people? Are we people who, are, who don't just know some verses, but who are shaped by your word? Lord, that's what we want to be. We want to be shaped by you. So help us as we look here at 1 Samuel 14, and we see Jonathan, and we see a sterling example of confidence in you, encouraging you, pushing him to do what seems crazy. <laughs> it just seems crazy what he did. But he had his confidence in the right place, and you used him. Help us to be like that. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've been listening to a book. I just finished it. It was a really moving book, actually. It's, it's called We Were Soldiers Once and Young. I don't know if any of you have heard of it. It came out just a couple years after I was born in the 90s. Uh, it's by Lieutenant General Harold Moore. And what he does in this book primarily is he details two of the early battles in Vietnam. Uh, it, the, the battles uh, took place in November 1965. They were the first major engagements in which the U.S. lost a large number of lives. And they were the battles at landing zones X-Ray and Albany in the Iadrang Valley. And what he does throughout this book is he chronicles, really, just what's happening at different times and places in the battle. And what you see are all these men who acted with unusual courage and valor. Um, I think at one point in the book he says, you know, the, the things that were normal for these guys that, that just seemed like everybody on the battlefield was doing were things that, had they happened at another time and place, would have earned them the Congressional Medal of Honor. You know, they, these guys just showed exemplary courage. And it was, it was just a, a very moving uh, communication of, of how these men had served, how they loved their country and each other, and, and had sacrificed their lives in many cases. And here in 1 Samuel 14, we're going to see a battle story that's kind of like that. Someone matched up against immeasurably scary odds, and, and God is going to use him. So the setting, if you remember, in chapter 13, verse 2, we met, met this young man, Jonathan. Chapter 13, verse 2 says, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. So he's got an army of 3,000 guys. 2,000 were with him with Saul at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. It's interesting here in chapter 13, we actually aren't told that Jonathan is Saul's son. We just know that he's the leader of these men. And 
Jonathan then takes his, his garrison and defeats, or takes his men and defeats the garrison of the Philistines at Geba. So the first thing we know about Jonathan is he's got this small group of men and he attacks a Philistine outpost and defeats it. And we think, man, this guy, is he's got it going on, except the Philistines are not happy about this. The Philistines muster in verse 5. It's an interesting word, muster. <laughs> uh, the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, which probably had at least two soldiers in each of them, so 60,000 men there, plus 6,000 horsemen, 6,000 cavalry troops, and then troops, foot troops, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. We don't even get a number for how many foot troops they've brought up. The Philistines are going to crush this silly little Israelite rebellion. And of course, we remember the story that of, of Saul freaking out about what's going to happen, and he tries to, to do the sacrifices himself, and Samuel comes and rebukes him and leaves him without the prophetic word, just ditches out. And, and Saul... His men, part of why he had panicked is because his men have started to desert. They see how many are, see how many Philistines are lining up against them, and they start leaving. They're hiding in caves. They're hiding in holes. They're hiding in the rocks and in the tombs and the cisterns. Like, they jump down in the well and pull the lid over. <laughs> Maybe they won't find me in here. And it's looking pretty bad. They're down from the first part of chapter 13 where they have 3,000 men. To chapter 14, verse 2, they're down to 600 men. Now, if you're not super quick at math, that's an 80% reduction in force. <laughs> that is, that's ugly. They, he's lost that many guys, and everyone he has left, including Saul himself, are hiding in caves now. Uh, Saul is at, verse 2 of chapter 14, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. Uh, some, some places... Some translations bring that into English as a pomegranate tree because that makes more sense than caves. Uh, but, but the translation, I, I think the right translation is cave there. Um, there must have been a pomegranate tree close to it, so they called it the pomegranate cave. I don't, I don't know exactly what's going on. But that would seem to be in keeping with what else is happening, that, that Saul and his men are all hiding. They're hiding because they're vastly outnumbered. And remember, only two guys in Israel have swords. Saul and Jonathan are the only ones who have swords. Everybody else has their, their farm implements that they have to take to the Philistines to get sharpened. And if the Philistines are massing to attack, they're probably not going to sharpen them. They normally charge an exorbitant rate, but right now they're probably saying, not you can have a dull plowshare today. So things look really ugly for Israel. So it's in light of that that we're going to read. We'll read verses 1 through 23. What we're going to end up doing is, is zooming in on, on verse 6, uh, but, but I want to read the whole story. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people who did not know that Jonathan, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, 
the name of the other Sina. The one crag rose to the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we have come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we'll show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike with Jonathan, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who is gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now when Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. So there, in that last verse, we see the Lord is the one who saved Israel that day. Verse 23, the Lord saved Israel. But he did so, in large part, through human means, right? He used Jonathan and his armor-bearer to work this salvation. Verse 45, uh, we're not going to go into this, but if you remember, Saul had made this vow that if anybody eats before sundown, before I'm avenged on my enemies, I'm going to kill them. <laughs> and, uh, and Jonathan, not knowing about this, eats honey. And so Saul's going to have him killed. And the people, they, they won't do it. Um, verse 45, Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it, as the Lord lives, there shall not one head of, hair of his head fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. So the people understand that God, God is the one that the salvation came from, but he, he worked it through Jonathan. He used Jonathan's courage to initiate this great panic among the Philistines that led to Israel routing them from the field. 
Jonathan and his armor bearer hatched a, a daring plan that, that led them to, to cross these... It, one commentator, he describes it almost as like walking into the jaws of death. So the, the Philistines are garrisoned up over here, and the, the Israelites are over here. And in between what the ESV calls these two rocky crags, like the two sides of this ravine, the, literally their names mean slippery and thorny. <laughs> these are not like a welcoming place to launch their attack. And they're saying, hey, guys, we're over here. And when the, the Philistines say, oh, yeah, all two of you, come get us. We'll show you a thing or two. Then they, they take off and they, they do it. This is a story about God's power, but it's also a story about God using courageous action. So what, what can we learn about courage from Jonathan and his armor bearer? I want to zoom in and, and fix our focus on verse 6, where Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. I feel like that's the that encapsulates the heart of Jonathan here and, and what drives him to take this action. The first thing that we're going to see is that courage gets going. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the, the phrase, let go and let God. Um, it, it's a phrase that comes out of higher life theology, which was uh, popular in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and it's kind of, it, it's got a continuing influence today, but it was kind of exemplified by what was called the Keswick School in England. Um, and that's where that idea comes from, that we become more like Christ by just letting go of things in our life and letting God take care of them. Uh, and and uh, one of the m most important evangelical writers of the 20th century was a man named J.I. Packer. And he had grown up in a church that that was very caught up in this kind of higher life theology, and where that higher life theology can often lead is to a legalism that says, if you, if you aren't perfectly walking with Christ, it's because of your inability to let go, because you aren't having enough faith, because you aren't letting go of things in your life and letting God control them. And, and this crushed Packer as a young man to the point where he was suicidal. He was about to try to take his own life, and he, he wound up uh, coming under the influence of a, a preacher in London by the na name of Martin Lloyd-Jones, who <laughs> gave him some better teaching on, on how to become a sanctified Christian, how to, how to work towards following Christ uh, more diligently, and as a, how to understand his own sinfulness at the same time as he had a desire to grow more like Christ. And in one of his books, uh, Packer... Packer says the, the motto for the Christian should not be let go and let God. Rather, the motto for the Christian should be trust God and get going. <laughs> and I just love that phrase. It stuck with me ever since the first time I heard it, uh, that, that we, should, we should trust God and get going. And that's the first thing that we see here is Jonathan defaults to action. While everybody else is hiding in caves, while everybody else is worried about what's going to happen, what's going on, Jonathan says, well, let's go do something. <laughs> let's, let's act. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, he says to his, his armor bearer. Now, um, 
Owen asked me when we were reading this a while back, Dad, what's an armor bearer? And so it, it actually is kind of an important piece of this story. An armor bearer went with uh, a, an important man into battle, and he would carry his shield, and he also would carry, he didn't have a sword, we know that, but he would carry some kind of weapon to finish off people. So if, like if Jonathan's engaged in battle and he's knocking people down with his sword, he's not going to have time to finish that guy off because then he would get killed. And so the armor bearer follows behind and just finishes off whoever the, the soldier knocks down. So that's what this guy's role is. And, and Jonathan says, hey, let's the two of us go over there. And now if I'm Jonathan's armor bearer, I look at him and I go, the rest of the army is hiding where it's safe. And you want us, the two of us, to go attack, well, 80, 100,000 men. Like, who, are you nuts? <laughs> what, are, what are you thinking? But he says, do what's in your heart. I'm with you, heart and soul. These guys default to action. And we can very easily, as Christians, fall prey to paralysis. That where, where we, God's given us something to do. He's, he's put tasks in front of us, but we look out and we either look at that task and think, oh, we can think of all the reasons why that's not right for me. You know, I'm, God comes to Moses and says, I'm going to use you to lead my people out of Egypt. But you know, God, I'm really not great at public speaking. You know, God, I'm 80 years old. You know, God, like he's got, he could, he'd come up with all kinds of reasons and he tried some of them with God. And God just wasn't impressed by his reasons. God's going to use who he wants to use. And so if he gives us a job, he just expects us to do it. There, there are so many parts of uh, Christian obedience that we don't think of them as courageous, but, but they, they pull against everything that this world would tell us. We were just reading in Family Devotions the other night, uh, the Beatitudes. And if you look at Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think you see, like, verses 3 through 10, like, that's one unit, both at the end of verse 3 and verse 10. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Like, this is describing one kind of person. And here's, I think, what happens to that person. Verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. God puts these, they seem simple things in front of us. To be peacemakers, not those who are stirring up already present anger and, and division. To, to be merciful when, when we want to stamp our foot down and say, no, I want justice. 
to be pure when the world is throwing all kinds of impurity at us. To hunger and thirst for righteousness. Like, none of this is really rocket science, right? But to actually walk this way, it is going to take courage. But God puts it in front of us, and we, we can just do it. As believers, we've got the Spirit, and we can obey. It's interesting here, in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel, the author draws our attention to how improbable this victory is. You've got an impotent hiding king in verse 2. Saul has, has already messed everything up, and now he's hiding in a cave with a little bit of an army he has left. The priest he has in verse 3 is Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas. So Ahitub is also Phinehas's son. Ahijah is Phinehas's grandson, the son of Eli, priest of the Lord in Shiloh. Well, what do we remember about that priestly line? God rejected them. God promised that they're all going to end up dead. So you've got an impotent hiding king accompanied by a rejected priestly line, and here they are hiding from the enemy, not, not to mention the fact that the enemy is enormous. They've got this swarm that, that the author doesn't even count for us. They're like the sand on the sea. The terrain for an attack is poor. You've got to go down slippery and up thorny to get to the enemy. And, and here, nonetheless, Jonathan and his armor bearer act. And God gives them a victory. But notice in verses 12 through 14, at first this actually seems like a pretty small victory. The men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing like, Oh yeah, come on, come on. We'll, we'll teach you a lesson, you silly little Israelites. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, which again tells you just how bad like this terrain is. He's having to use all his hands and feet to crawl up there. Probably got his sword strung across his back. And his armor bearer came up after him. And that first strike with Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. Now, 20 guys against two, like, that's pretty impressive. But 20 guys out of 100,000, it's not very many. <laughs> that's, that's really not much. They're just, you're still waiting for them to get killed. And yet, God uses that small victory that he works through them to work utter panic. And if you remember in chapter 13, uh, verse 17 of chapter 13, there had been raiding parties sent out from the Philistines. And the disturbance in the Philistine camp is so great at this victory that even those raiding parties hear about it and they get scared and run away too. And, and everyone who had joined the Philistines from the Israelite side, the, the Hebrew side, verse 21, they hear what's going on and like, oh, we better go back to our side. <laughs> we, better, we better quit being traitors and go back and help Saul chase these guys out of here. It, it turns into a giant rout because of all the confusion which God works. All of this happened because Jonathan and his armor bearer were willing to take an action that to all outside observers would have seemed crazy. He just was simply obedient to God, even when it didn't seem like it made any sense at all. He was just obedient. This, this isn't 
to question the value of wisdom, planning, deliberation. I mean, you read the Proverbs and all those things are held up as important values. But, but sometimes, as Christians, I think we can use those as excuses not to act. Well, i got to keep praying about it. Well, if what God put in front of you to do is something he's already, like, do you really need to pray about sharing the gospel with that person? No, God already told you to do it. <laughs> you can pray about how. You can pray for strength to do it. You know someone who has a need, and you've got the financial resources or the ability to make a meal to address that need. Do you really need to pray about whether to do that? No, you can pray about how it's received, and you can pray about, like, God, would you use it in their lives? But he's already told you to do it. Just do it. Just act. There, there should be a bias in Christians towards action rather than inaction. I think of James 2, 14 and following, where, where it says, if if there's a brother or sister that, that's in need of something, and you say to him, go, be warmed and filled, you know, God be with you till we meet again, but you don't actually address their need, what what good is that faith? What good is your prayer for them? Like, if you're not actually going to address, God, God puts you there so that you could be the answer to their prayer for that, for that need to be met. Uh, so, so courage gets going. The second thing we see is that courage trusts God with the results. It doesn't presume on God, but it trusts God with the results. See that in the middle of the verse 6 there? It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. It may be. I, one of the great stumbling blocks that I know I have, especially when it comes to something like sharing the gospel with someone, is a fear of failure. I'm afraid of how it's going to turn out. You know, I, I've talked to uh, a lot of other pastors that are, you know, afraid to, to try new things or to, to start new things, new initiatives. And, and there is just like this fear of, well, if I don't get every, all my ducks lined up in a row ahead of time, if we don't get everything lined up, what if it fails? What if it doesn't look good to those around us? And we've just, we've just got this fear that acting for the Lord might make us fall flat on our face. Note what Jonathan says here. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Now, he's not doubting God's ability, right? In the last part of the verse, he says, nothing can hinder the Lord. We see that he does take action on this, so he doesn't question God's ability to use two guys against an entire city's worth of soldiers. He, but he realizes that God is in control. And even when he's acting as best as he knows in obedience to God, things might not go the way he hoped. Uh, I think of uh, William Carey, one of the founders of the modern missionary movement. Uh, he and, and a group of others in England were really burdened in the 1780s and early 1790s that, that we've got the gospel here in England, in Western Europe, there's, you know, there's a bunch of Christian, quote-unquote, countries, either either Protestant or Catholic, you know, like, that it, in some way, like, the gospel had influenced those societies, and we've got it here, but why aren't we going anywhere with it? You know, Jesus said to go into all the world and preach the gospel. He said, go make disciples of all the nations, and here we are just seems like 
we're just sitting on our laurels not doing anything about this. Why, why aren't we sharing the gospel with China and with India and with all these other places? And, and so William Carey goes. He goes to India in 1792, I think it was, or 1793. And he, he starts learning the language, meeting people, trying to share the gospel. He spent seven years there with no converts. Now, if a missionary agency sent someone out today and they spent seven years out there with no converts, they would pull them back. <laughs> like, okay, you must not be gifted at this. This must not be what you're called to do. Uh, can you imagine? Seven years. Now, I, I know I'm younger than most of the people here, so like seven years probably still seems longer to me than it, than it does to some people. But like for me, that's over a fifth of my life. Seven years he spends there. But it wasn't a failure. It looked like a failure for a long time. But then God uses him, and people do start to come to Christ, and he's able to start schools there. The, the first degree-granting college ever that was ever in India was started by William Carey. And, and the modern missionary movement that, that was started with Carey and those few others has led to the gospel literally being preached, not to every tribe and tongue and people yet, but on every country on the globe there is now gospel witness, in large part because these men just did what God, they felt very clearly God wanted them to do. What they saw in Scripture was important and wasn't being done, they did it. Courage risks failure. That If there weren't a risk of failure, at least in a human sense, it wouldn't take courage, right? <laughs> like, if, it, if it didn't have some chance of falling flat on its face, it wouldn't take any courage at all. Jonathan and his armor bearer know they're not invincible. We know at the end of this book, Jonathan dies in battle. So it's not like God had given him any super special protection that made him invincible in battle. But he knows God wants him to do this, and so he does it. And God uses it to create that supernatural panic that, that turns into an Israelite victory. Some people trust God for results. You know, if we rub the genie bottle just the right way, or if we do this certain prayer program, he'll give us what we want. You know, there, there were revivalists in the 1800s who thought, if we do this certain program where we share the gospel this number of times, or we pray these certain prayers, God has to give us converts. God has to give us results. And it's not true. God is the one who is in control of the results. Uh, I think I took it out of my notes, but 1 Corinthians 3 says, Apollos planted. I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the growth. Like, God is the one that's in control of those things. But courage trusts God, knowing that all of his ways are righteous and just, and we trust him with the results. Uh, if you look at Daniel chapter 3, Daniel's always a good book to go to if you're looking for either some wild and hard-to-understand prophecies or examples of courage. You can get both there. It's like a variety book. But Daniel chapter 3. So the, the backstory is uh, the... The emperor Nebuchadnezzar, he's built this giant golden statue of himself. When all the musicians play, everybody's supposed to bow down and worship this statue as an example, like as a, as a means of worshiping Nebuchadnezzar himself. And these three Israelites, uh, 
can't think of their their Hebrew names are in here earlier in the book. Hananiah. Uh, I hear you guys mumbling them. <laughs> I'm sure you know them. <laughs> uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But we know them uh, from Veggie Tales as Rakshak and Benny. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to. They refused to bow. And so God, not God, <laughs> the guy who thought he was God, Nebuchadnezzar brings them before him and says, I hold your life in your hand, and who can save you from me? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel chapter 3, verse 16, answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer to you in this matter. <laughs> if, if this be so, that, that you're going to throw us into the fiery furnace, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Our God can save us. We think our God will save us. And if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow. We're still only going to worship God. And of course we know God, God really freaks out Nebuchadnezzar because one of who appears like the Son of Man stands there in that fiery furnace and none of them get burnt. It's so hot that the guys who go to throw them in die from the heat and they live. God does deliver them because they refuse to bow the knee to human kings. We trust God with the results of courage. Thirdly, courage knows the real odds. So Jonathan and his armor bearer act, and they do so knowing, trusting God with the results. Thirdly, the reason they can have that kind of confidence to act and trust God is because they know who has the real power. They know how the odds are actually stacked up. The, it's, not, it's not 600 versus however many tens of thousands. It's God versus not God. That's the odds. Who, which, which side is at advantage? The side with 30,000 chariots and 6,000 cavalry, or that two-man crew with God on their side. Nothing can hinder the Lord, Jonathan says, from saving by many or by few. I just want to look at a couple of psalms that say exactly the same thing. Psalm 60. And verse 12. Actually, I want to back up and read verses 11 and 12. Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. In Psalm 108, verses 12 and 13. Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Jonathan knows this. His armor bearer obviously knows this. And they trust God to be the one who brings salvation. Because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. 
It makes me think of Romans 8.31, which says, If God is for us, who can be against us? As we think about that, I think Romans 8 is actually a good place to turn. Like, How do we take this kind of courage and bring it into our life today? Jonathan is fighting for a nation, right? The people of Israel were the the people of the descendants of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. They're the people of God in the Old Covenant. And and they are a nation for which they have an army. And and they go out and they do battle for God. They, They fight for the nation with their swords. But in the New Testament, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, He calls the church, built on the cornerstone of Christ, a a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, a royal priesthood. We've got a different kind of nation that we are fighting for. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In verses 11 and 12, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when, not if, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We're, we're a people who are called out of the world. We still have a, a role in this world, but, but we are called out in our fundamental identity as are as the people of God, as his royal priesthood, his holy nation. And our lives are to be so different that when they speak against us, because they hate him, John 16, Jesus says, they hated me, they're going to hate you too. So when they, they speak against us because they hate him, they need to not have anything that can actually stick. We should be like Teflon to accusations of evil because people will then actually look at our lives and say, well, that doesn't make sense. They, they should throw things at us and they just go like water off a duck's back because our lives are so holy and different. Romans 8. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How how do we know that God is for us? How can we know as believers that we're on God's side, that we're part of that holy nation? If our trust is in Christ, if, if our hope is fixed on him, verses 32 and following in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. If your hope is in Jesus, God has displayed how devoted he is to your good by sending his son to be the payment for your sin. And not only sending him to earth, 
but raising him from the dead after he had died for our sins, raising him, ascending, seating him at his own right hand, where the Son now intercedes for us. The Son of God intercedes for the believer in Jesus Christ. Well, if that doesn't make God for you, <laughs> what could? Like, if you're trusting in Jesus, he is at the Father's right hand right now, praying for you. And he can use you. He will protect you in every way that you need protected. And he will use you. How does that affect our courage? What does Christian courage then look like? Again, I think the rest of this chapter in Romans 8 shows us what Christian courage looks like. It looks like lambs heading to the slaughter. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What does Christian conquering look like? Looks like fearlessly following Christ in the face of ferocious foes. Verse 37, in all these things, all these tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, being killed all day long things, in all those things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our, our culture, broadly speaking, values two things above all else. Uh, the first being sexual self-expression, is like the, the center of who you are. And the other is political tribes. And, and to stand faithfully for Christ is going to mean we consistently stand against a seemingly overwhelming stream pushing us away from him. It, it's going to be standing faithful for Christ means we're going to have to stand against all of the lies that, that say that your sexual identity or your feelings of how to express yourself in that way is the most important thing about you. Lies that say your human body doesn't have any meaning and you can just change it however you want. Like, those are going to be things. These, these are things that even if the, the government doesn't crack down on you, the culture will. <laughs> you know? Like, you, if you say that on social media, which my solution to that was just to get off social media, but if, if you sit on social media, you'll get pushed aside and criticized. Like, if you, if you say those things too loudly in your workplace, people are going to look at you funny. And, and standing firm for the truth while not at the same time putting on jerseys that say everyone who disagrees with me politically is evil and from the devil. Like that also is incredibly countercultural. Being a peacemaker, we're called the sons of God, is countercultural. Standing with Christ is more likely to get us crucified, figuratively in our country, literally in others, than to accrue for us earthly or political power. But in the end, if we have Jesus, not having earthly power is okay. It's better 
to be with Christ than to be with the powers of this world. It's more than okay. Verse 37 of Romans 8 says that we're more than conquerors, more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is really encouraging to me, that God is not constrained to save by many or by few. Because I look here and I see few. You know? But God has given us a place as Remsen Bible Fellowship, as, as a church here in this community. And he's got a role for us. He's got things for us to do. And I'm excited to see the things that he already has done and is doing. He doesn't he doesn't need us to be amazing. He doesn't need us to have some great grand plan or some huge group of people to accomplish what he's put in front of us. We just have to be faithful to him. And that's exciting to me because we serve a God who is able to do mighty things. Who knows but what he, he might have, mighty plans with this little flock. I'm thankful for that. Let's pray. Father God, you are an almighty God. And Lord, I, I confess so often, that's not how I'm thinking. I'm seeing the things around me that disturb me or upset me, and I'm not thinking about the God who is in the heavens who does whatever he pleases. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot in vain when you're sitting there in control of it all? Give us hearts that are fixed on you, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.